Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Can the federal government resolve a long-running dispute with the Texas National Guard? Should it? The Guard under Governor Greg Abbott has been running its own border protection operation, at times keeping Customs and Border Protection out of the way. For one view of the legalities here and what the federal government could do, we turn to the Council for Liberty and National Security at the Brennan Center for Justice, Joseph Nunn. Mr. Nunn, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. And you're writing that the federal government or the Biden administration could take on this effort, but probably it's not a great idea. What's your thesis here, and should they do it in the first place? After all, Governor Abbott is keeping some of the migrant surge out with what he's been doing. Yeah, the issue here is really the president can take control of the Texas National Guard if he wants to. The question is not really one of lawfulness. It's a question of whether it would be appropriate. And the answer to that question is no. At this point, federalizing the Texas National Guard would be premature if you look at the intent behind the relevant law, the way it's been used in the past, and generally how we resolve these sorts of disputes between the states and the federal government in the United States. And what is the relevant law and how would it work? The law we're concerned with here is the Insurrection Act. Now, I will back up for a moment. There are a variety of statutes that allow the president to federalize the National Guard. Most of those are really concerned with what you might call the operational needs of the armed forces. Say we find ourselves in a large war and the Pentagon needs more troops or they need more of a particular kind of unit that the National Guard has. The president can federalize portions or all of the National Guard for those purposes. None of those statutes apply here. What we're looking at is really two statutes. One is the Insurrection Act. The other is a statute called 10 U.S.C. Section 12406. Section 12406 is a very strange statute. On the one hand, it seems to give the president a unilateral authority to federalize the National Guard. On the other hand, it requires orders for those purposes to be issued through the state governors. That is an odd construction on the part of Congress if we're talking about a unilateral presidential authority. What if the governor says no? I mean, you can imagine litigation flowing from that, but it's a strange statute. By contrast, the Insurrection Act, it's not ambiguous. And also, if you look at past practice, on those rare occasions when the president has needed to take away control of the National Guard from a misbehaving state governor, we might say, that's always been done through the Insurrection Act. So while the law is a little bit muddy when it comes to 12406, the safest assumption is that if President Biden wanted to federalize Texas National Guard and you know order them to stand down, he would have to do so through the Insurrection Act. And nowadays, insurrection has become a loaded word. You know, people have different interpretations of what was called an insurrection. Some people have been charged with insurrection. Some have not. But how is it insurrection if the Texas National Guard is simply doing what some might say CBP ought to be doing? They seem to be aiding the federal government here. So this is an instance where the Insurrection Act probably could have a better name. The Insurrection Act exists certainly to allow the president to deal with insurrections. When you when you have a rebellion against state or federal authority, think in the very early American history, the Whiskey Rebellion, but also the Civil War, the Insurrection Act exists for those circumstances. The Insurrection Act also serves to allow the president to deploy the military to enforce the law when civilian authorities are 
otherwise overwhelmed, when some sort of crisis is preventing civilian authorities from executing the law, it also allows the president to deploy the military to execute the law when a state is interfering with the execution of federal law in some way. So the classic example here is Little Rock, Arkansas in 1957, when the governor of Arkansas was using the Arkansas National Guard to physically prevent the Little Rock Nine, nine black school children from entering Little Rock Central High School and integrating the school. And President Eisenhower famously invoked the Insurrection Act, federalized the Arkansas National Guard, ordered them to stand down, and also deployed the 101st Airborne Division to escort the children to school. So that scenario is what some people are imagining when they're calling on Biden to federalize the Texas National Guard to stand down. The argument is that Texas is interfering with federal immigration enforcement and border security. We're speaking with Joseph Nunn. He's counsel for liberty and national security at the Brennan Center for Justice. But you are arguing against doing that now, against doing it at this time. What's your reasoning? I am arguing against it. And Little Rock is really a useful example for explaining that argument. The crucial difference between Little Rock and now is really twofold. The first thing is the governor of Arkansas in 1957 was using the National Guard to directly defy a federal court order. There was a a federal court order to integrate Little Rock Central High School immediately, not in a month, immediately. And the National Guard was deployed to physically stop that from happening. President Eisenhower waited until the federal judge had exhausted all of the options at his disposal that he would ordinarily use to see that his orders were enforced. He treated the Insurrection Act as a last resort in that sense. And also, and this is the second thing, in Little Rock, Eisenhower did not invoke the Insurrection Act until there was a clear and imminent threat of mob violence, that the specifically sort of anti-Black mob violence targeting these nine school children. Eisenhower waited until he really had no other choice. He treated the Insurrection Act as a last resort, which is what he should do. That's not the situation we have in Texas. This is not Little Rock. A number of people pushing the Biden administration to federalize the Texas National Guard have pointed to the Supreme Court's recent order, but the Supreme Court has not actually ordered Texas to do anything. That's the order saying that CBP had the authority to cut the concertina wire. Precisely. All that the Supreme Court did was vacate the Fifth Circuit's injunction that was barring CBP from cutting that wire. As things stand, there's no court order for Texas to violate. CBP can cut through that wire, Texas, as it stands, is free to put the wire back up. If CBP wants to cut the wire and Texas wants to restring the wire right after the CBP agents walk through it, they can do that until there's a court order to the contrary. Or until one side gets sick and tired of it, I guess, I suppose, which is not a great yeah. way to run the or thing. Or one side runs out of money. So at what point would the administration then, do you feel, be justified in invoking the Insurrection Act? So I think... There are a couple of scenarios. The first is going back to a court order. If we come to a situation where Governor Abbott is directing the Texas National Guard to defy a federal court order, then it becomes appropriate, I think, to invoke the Insurrection Act. That would fall in line with past historical practice and with the intent of the law. Or if Governor Abbott otherwise directs the Texas National Guard to do something that will not permit delay. For example, you know, to be clear, I don't think this is likely. If 
Governor Abbott were to instruct the Texas National Guard to try and arrest federal officials or occupy federal property. At that point, that, like defying a federal court order, becomes something that is fairly described as rebellion against the authority of the United States in the in the terms of the Insurrection Act. That would be like and it would become shelling to Fort them. Sumter or something. Yes. None of that is likely to happen. So it seems like there's just going to be this standoff for a while. I, I think that's right. And I think that underlines one point that I think is really important here, which is there's a lot of room left to litigate here. In the United States, when states and the federal government disagree, they solve those disputes in court whenever possible. Up until quite recently, the Biden administration has not aggressively asserted the federal government's prerogatives in federal court. There has not been a lot of litigation coming from the Biden administration. If the Biden administration were to you know, jump directly from doing very little to straight to the Insurrection Act, that would be inappropriate. There is an enormous amount of room still here to resolve this through the courts, which is what the states and the federal government do in a country that has the rule of law. Joseph Nunn is counsel for Liberty and National Security at the Brennan Center for Justice. Interesting thinking. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his essay on this topic at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. 
Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, 
And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions 
expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one size fits all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one size fits all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's. Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.